electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, losing its spark, Ford pulling way back on its EV truck ambitions why it could be grabbing Tesla's attention. China burrowing into American infrastructure is the water you drink at risk from hackers. New turmoil in the Middle East, Iran-backed militants conducting a brazen attack on an oil tanker. So why are oil prices down? Striking back at criminals, Apple rolling out a big move to stop thieves and thefts, plus... Pulling back the curtain, Netflix revealing viewership on all of its shows and movies for the first time ever. What do you see? Some of the shock favorites and the return of our Power City Indexes. We've got our exclusive rankings on America's top performing cities based on their hometown stocks. All that and more over the hour. Belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon at West. Hi, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. All that ahead today. But first up on Last Call, moving on a little bit from the Magnificent Seven, the big tech stocks, you know, that include Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and four others. They have been on a tear this year, soaring. But investors appear to be looking for love in some new places. Here's why we say that. CBC's Magnificent Seven Index, yeah, we got an index for everything, is up about 2% over the past month. But in the meantime, The S&P 500 Equal Weighted Index is up 8% over the same time frame. That means effectively that the rest of the S&P 493 are starting to pull their own weight, if not outperform. The broadening out has pushed all three major indexes to do 52-week highs today. The Dow is just 222 points away from its all-time high and is at an all-time high on a total return basis. The S&P 500 touched its highest intraday level in nearly two years. A market rally all coming ahead of a critical Fed decision and call tomorrow. Wall Street largely expecting the Fed to hold rates steady. But as investors hanging on Chair Powell's every word for any hint of rate cuts, a crucial question looms for investors for this year. And next, do you just kind of stick with what's been working, the Magnificent Seven? Or move into the value names that have lagged so far this year, which is pretty much every other stock. All right, let's talk about it with our A-list leadoff panel. That is Solus Alternative Asset Management Chief Strategist Dan Greenhouse and Clio Capital Managing Director Sarah Kunst. Welcome back to you both. Sarah, what do you think? I mean, should should our viewers and listeners be starting to think about taking some profits in the seven and putting them in the 493? You know, the main thing I think is that this is not a monolith. You know, people kind of consistently look at them like they're all one block and they're not. You know, names like NVIDIA, Microsoft, yeah, this might be a good time to say, actually, they've had their run. AI is is not turning in the revenue yet quite yet. 
Maybe you want to lock in some gains. Names like Tesla, uh, I'm personally not a fan. And I think that that their CEO is, is probably not the right person to, to drive the ship in this moment of kind of global turmoil that the company's seen. So there are some names where you say, yeah, you might want to sell. And then there are other names like Google that the Alphabet, you know, that owns Google, where I would probably hold because I think that they're underestimated in AI. I think their advertising business is still chugging along. And I just I think that this is not just a one size fits all trade. Dan. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of truth in what Sarah had to say. I think uh, from my point of view, uh, I, I felt like the 493, so to speak, to overgeneralize was probably going to catch up. Are you up. saying that TV will periodically overgeneralize or I sensationalize don't know what you're talking anything? about, my friend. What? Um, yeah, listen, I think there, there have been terrific performers within those 493 already this year. And, and you've, as you mentioned, you've already seen some of the catch-up. My, my gut has been and remains that from a performance standpoint, you're probably going to do better outside of the Magnificent Seven, so to speak. That's not to say that those big names uh, don't, don't do well, because ultimately they have better growth rates, better margins, et cetera, et cetera, better, better balance sheets. But at the same time, uh, the, the earnings revision benefits that, they've, that, that have helped boost them over the last couple of months, those have started to fade. The premium valuation. But you know, you know what I'm saying, Dan? Like, you're in the hedge fund world. Like, if you just... If you just bought the NASDAQ Triple Q at the start of the year, like you're just some dentist in Des Moines. Not, sure. We love dentists in Nothing Des Moines. Nothing wrong with dentists in Des Moines. Especially if you need a, you have a root canal on a Thursday in Des Moines, they're there. But if you just did that, you're outperforming like 99.9% of all the million-dollar hedge fund managers in America probably. Well, this is a whole other segment on the, the problems with passive and active management. But, but listen, at the end of the day, you've, the, those big names have done a lot of the heavy lifting this year because they are so large and so if you're an active manager, you have to be meaningfully overweight those names to outperform, which is a pretty difficult uh, thing to do when you consider how large they already are. Effectively, Sarah, impossible, right? I mean, get, these stocks are so big that, and I described it one time, that the stock market was a bowling ball sitting on top of a pencil, and those seven were the bowling ball. I mean, I just wonder if they don't move, can the overall market actually move? I think over time, the market can move and, and can just move in a different direction, right? Right now, Magnificent Seven is sort of all we see. Uh, but before that, I mean, remember when Netflix was a contender in this? And, and certainly now it's not. So as the market moves, as different trends come and go, I think that these names change. You'll give it a moniker. You'll give it an index, I'm sure. But it's not going to be these seven forever. I'm not convinced it'll be these seven by this time next year. Why is that? I think that these are different companies doing different things. I think some of them, the Apples of the world, the Googles, yes, absolutely. It is hard to go from being a $3 trillion company to zero in any short amount of time. But some of these other companies, I think they're they're driven. Tesla is my, my sort of dead horse that I will keep beating. They're driven so much by hype versus the core technology versus what's actually happening with sales uh, that I just have my doubts about how long that can go. Now, am I going to go out and short Tesla? No, that is a great way to lose your shirt. But I, I'm not necessarily super bullish there. But but, but just to, to that point, Tesla is, if you pull up the chart of Tesla, if we have it, and I'm sure we do, that's not the best looking chart. Our brand new graphics. Look at this. So beautiful. They're green. Um, it's a lot of green. There's, there is a lot of green in the name, but the, the chart hasn't done very well. What's driven this last leg with, of the market higher among the Magnificent Seven has been Apple, which ironically was among the laggards for a little while, uh, and there's, there are some fundamental reasons to that. But I, I will just add, 
the equal weighted ETF, which is going to negate the, the valuation advantage and the market cap advantage that those big seven have, the equal weight is now up 7, 8, 9% for the year, which, while not the 20% or so that the traditional S&P is yeah. up, is still a pretty good year. It is. And we have that equal weighted chart. And I want to point out also, Sarah, this has not just been in America. We love America. Like, we're always, we've got the eagle on the shoulder and everything. A lot of Europe has outperformed us. The a lot da- of the DAX, the DAX in Germany, despite all their energy problems and all this other stuff, which was one of my predictions this year, by the way, that I, the DAX would outperform the S&P 500. And look at you. I, no, I think they're tied. So I still have time to be wrong. And I know everyone's rooting against me. But my point is, Sarah, this has been a global market phenomenon. I just can it continue in 24. You know, I think we're at an interesting kind of crossroads as we get into 24. There's a ton of cash sitting on the sidelines or historic levels of cash sitting in money market funds and in sweep accounts. Uh, and, and so as that cash starts to get out of bonds, the shorter term duration bonds, is if, if they when they start yielding as much, I think that you will see more money go into these indexes, more money go into the stock market. I mean, it's interesting right now that gold's up, crypto's up. Those things in theory are uncorrelated, even though we know in reality they tend to be correlated to people wanting to put money somewhere mm-hmm. to make a riskier return. So I think that we'll see what 24 holds, but there's so much money on the sidelines that certainly more of it is going to be pumped into these markets. Amazing. At some point, all this sideline money, I think, will have to dry up or maybe we just keep printing more. Sarah Kuntz, Dan Greenhouse, thank you both very much. Thank you. I got to find this sideline with all this money on it. The money's not on the sidelines, but we'll save it. No, but I just would like to find that sideline so I can go visit. (laughs) Okay. And just get some money. We can, we can do it next week. Dan, thank you. All right, let's get to our stud and dud inside the market. The winner in the S&P 500 today, pharma company Insight, up 8.5 behavior. Got, or behavior. Got some positive data points about a drug that treats graft versus host disease. The big decliner, we talked about it last night, Oracle. Oof, down 12%, although I think still up on the year. All right, we are just getting started. And up next to our last call, Ford pulling the plug on some... E-electric truck manufacturing, why Tesla should listen up. Plus, if you do want to buy an EV next year, we're going to show you the 10 cars that could help you max out your federal tax credit. The names ahead. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. All right, time for your daily RBI. And today, let's talk about cars, because we know that many of you may be in the market for a new car. 
And maybe you're looking at an electric car in part because you've heard about the generous $7,500 federal tax credit to buy an EV. That could influence your final decision because it could help bring down the overall cost of the car, maybe buy a lot. But here's what you need to know. The Treasury Department just came out with their updated guidelines for next year in 2025. And those limit which cars are eligible for that tax credit. It all has to do with where the battery parts are made and beginning in 25, where the minerals for the batteries are sourced. It's complicated. But the White House wants as much of this done in America as possible. Bring manufacturing here, which was one massive component of the climate spending bill now known as the IRA. The problem is that not so much of this is done in America right now. So the number of cars that are actually eligible for the $7,500 credit is not very long. In fact, only 10 models, 10, are eligible for the full tax credit next year. Some are eligible by half, but here are the full tax credit cars. And let's dissect a little bit, okay, the list. The Chevy Bolt, fine, but it's actually being discontinued after next year, so scratch that off. The F-150 Lightning, as Phil Bowe's about to tell you, is seeing production being cut in half due to weak demand. The Chrysler on the list is not really an EV. It's actually a hybrid that also uses gasoline, but the battery in the hybrid is just big enough to have it qualify under this credit. The Chevy Silverado pickup will cost upwards of $100,000 for the nicer consumer version. The one you're seeing is more of the work truck. So what does that leave us? Well, it basically leaves you with three non-union Teslas, the Chevy Blazer and the Cadillac Lyric. Good looking car, by the way, both from GM. So think about it. One part of D.C. is spending billions of taxpayer dollars to get you to buy an EV through the tax credit, while another part of D.C. is making it nearly impossible to take advantage of it. That may be the most D.C. thing ever, and it is certainly random. But interesting. In the meantime, as we noted, Ford is cutting its EV F-150 Lightning production plans, but keeping it going. Phil LeBeau joining us now with more. Phil. Brian, this is probably the most prudent thing that Ford has announced recently. And they really didn't even announce this. It came out because suppliers said, hey, look, what we were expecting to send to them for building next year on the Lightning, it's going to be cut in half. So here's what Ford is going to be doing. And the company says, look, we're matching demand. And that's prudent. That's what you want them to do. You do not want them overbuilding. They're going to cut their 2024 production plans by approximately 50 percent. means they're going to build about 80,000 Lightnings next year. Their sales, by the way, this year, just over over 20,000. And yes, lightning sales are gradually increasing. In fact, in November, best month ever for sales of the lightning, more than 4,300 lightnings were sold. That's not going to be what they need every month in 2024. But there is demand out there, albeit not as much as Ford was expecting. As you take a look at the EV leaders in this country by market share, Ford is fifth right now. Tesla continues to dominate the market with more than 56% of the share of EVs that are sold. And there you see Ford at 5.3%. And as you take a look at shares of Ford, keep in mind that they believe that they've done the right thing by pushing out their investments in EVs by about $12 billion. Doesn't mean they're giving up that $12 billion, Brian. Just means that they're going to be pushing out uh, a little bit further because they realize the market right now is all about hybrids. This is important as you took a look at shares of GM and Stellantis because, as you mentioned with the Silverado, you're going to have a couple of e-pickups coming to market in the next year. Not in huge numbers, but they are coming to market. All of this calls into question, Brian, whether or not electric pickup trucks 
really how much of a market do they have? At, at least right now, how much of a market do they have? Yes, they're selling where EVs are hot on the two coasts, the smile of the U.S., but you go to places in the middle of Iowa or Minnesota or elsewhere, it's tough to yeah, sell an no. EV, let alone an EV pickup truck. Yeah, listen, they're cool and they're awesome looking and they're fast and fun to drive. But listen, the reality, and by the way, I would probably buy one. But the reality is if I did, it's going to be to drive around New Jersey. I'm not, I'm not towing my boat right. to Wisconsin with it. So that's, that's the reality. But as I understand it, Phil, and, and without going too deep into the weeds, uh, and I've heard from you and others that Ford is actually in a far better position potentially than GM because the way they've constructed their manufacturing on some of these EVs separates the facility to make it easier to re- sort of reconvert to a hybrid if necessary. Is that accurate? Yes. Yes. Okay. And, and, as, and as they increase their hybrid production, which is what they're doing, Jim Farley has looked at the market and has said, look, it's clear that the buyer right now, the consumer in the United States, whether it's with pickup trucks or any other model, they are more interested in hybrids than they are in pure electric vehicles. Now, that may ultimately change. But if you know that people want more hybrids, and they do when it comes to the F-150, hybrid F-150s outsell the electric by a two-to-one ratio right now. The smart thing to do is to push the hybrids, which is what Ford is doing. So, you know, people read these headlines today, Brian, and they said, here we go. You can't sell an electric vehicle in this country. Not entirely accurate. What this is more a case of is the consumer demand right now is not with electric vehicles to the degree that that the companies thought it would be. Therefore, they're shifting their production towards hybrids. That's it. And that's probably the right move and the smart move. And we'll see where it goes. We'll we'll see where it goes. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. All right. So while more and more legacy automakers ease back a little bit on their EV ambitions, the middle child, the hybrids, Phil just said, they're finding some serious love. Listen to this. So far this year, hybrids are a bigger percent of new car sales than all electric cars and trucks, despite getting not a lot of love or attention in the media. So should Tesla, of course, the king of EVs, and its investors be concerned about the rise of the hybrid? Let's take it to our next guest. Joining us now, Deepwater Asset Managing Partner and Director and Friend of Show, Gene Munster, Gene, I, I haven't looked. We get notes for guests. I didn't even look at your notes because I, I just know what you're going to say. <laughs> but, I, but I will, because my guess is this, and I'm going to speak for you and tell me I'm wrong. The person who buys the hybrid, the Toyota hybrid, is a completely different buyer than the person who's going to buy the Model S Plaid. For sure on that, Brian. It's, it is a Maybe different Maybe that was a bad buyer. mix. I should have gone with the Model bad Y mix. versus yeah. the Toyota Crown. I think we're uh, that gets a little bit more debatable, and I think that when we look at what's happened with hybrids, they have had an impact on EV sales. I just want to quickly frame in what that impact is, is that they're about 9% of total share today of U.S. cars, hybrids. This is like the Toyota Prius. Uh, you don't have a plug in it. Uh, you, you fill it up. You get 60 miles to the gallon typically, and it's priced about the same as a typical gas car. And electric right now is about 7% market share, just like you said in the setup here. If 1% share shifted from hybrids to EVs, that would increase EV growth rate this year from 20% to 35%. So a little bit of success with hybrids in terms of overall market share has a significant impact on what's going on with EV demand. And I think you and Phil had a a great setup uh, piece there, just kind of outlining what's going on in the EV market. But I want to add one uh, piece to that, is that I think the critical reason why EVs have slowed dramatically this year, part is because of hybrids, 
But I also believe that just simply the cost, they typically are 15 to 20% more than a typical gas car. Mm -hmm. And when you have interest rates for cars 10% plus, it's got to have an impact. And so I think that this is uh, an economic force in play here. There is the hybrid. I, I, I think that that is something that Tesla does keep Tesla up at night, at least in the near term. But I think that the, the interest rate environment is having a more profound impact on what's happened with EVs. They're just expensive. It, they are. And, you know, you, you tack on a 9% car loan on top of that. You know, you just look at whatever the price is. By the way, the resales on these things that we're realizing are also lower. So people say, well, they have lower maintenance costs. Yeah, but you're going to get you're going to get hosed on the resale, most likely more than you'd ever make up for in maintenance. But not. But again, to, as somebody who's owned an EV, driven almost every one of them and has raced cars for 25 years, a Tesla is a totally different experience. If for people who want a different drive, there's no knobs, there's no buttons. It's the iPad. It's the full self-driving. You love it or you don't, but it's not going to compete with other cars, Gene. I just don't think so. I don't think so either. And I think ultimately that the the market is saying they're not ready for to go all in. They want that traditional uh, hybrid experience. But I think if you fast forward five, 10 years from now, I think that uh, we're gonna get there with electric. When you and Phil were talking about kind of Ford being the best position, uh, I think it's, it's also worth noting that traditional mm -hmm. auto largely is in a horrible position. And I think that uh, what we're seeing with the growth and the investment in hybrids is another indictment in terms of their problem. And I, I, I don't know how much time you spent on those Boston duck boats, but that is effectively what a hybrid is. It's neither a gas car nor electric, it's both. Yeah. They're not gonna be able to scale margins when you have a car that is both electric and gas. You gotta make a commitment either to gas or electric. Which is what- you make the commitment to- Yeah, and which is what, sorry to cut you off, which is what Toyota has done and Toyota will tell you. The hybrids are better for the environment because the far less mineral need. Gene Munster will get you back on soon to talk about it. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, on deck, a sweeping bipartisan call to reset the U.S. economic relationship with China, plus a shocking report on Chinese government hackers and how far they may have already penetrated key U.S. infrastructure assets, why your electricity and maybe even your water supply could be at risk. You got to hear this coming up. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. All right, welcome back. The House China Committee releasing a new report that calls for major changes to the U.S.'s economic relationship with China. Eamon Javers joining us now with more. Eamon, what is in this report? Well, that's right, Brian. This report represents a potential sea change in America's economic attitude toward China, but not all the 150 changes that are recommended by this panel are likely to see congressional implementation what's expected to be a deeply divided election year in 24. Uh, but among the recommendations are hot button issues like changing China's permanent normal trade relations status, forcing public companies to disclose their Chinese supply chain risks, and directing the Federal Reserve to stress test banks 
for their ability to withstand a potential sudden loss of market access to China. Now, the committee would also ban many Chinese drones and impose measures to put uh, Chinese tech companies, uh, Huawei and ZTE, out of much of the U.S. market. On TikTok, the panel comes out in favor of forcing divestiture or an outright ban of the controversial social media company. Now, on a conference call with reporters earlier today, committee chairman Mike Gallagher told me he thinks a TikTok ban is one of the recommendations that could actually pass next year and that the committee has been discussing ways to do that with the Biden administration. One concern here is the Constitution's ban on bills of attainder, which target entities for punishment without a trial. So Gallagher says congressional legislation on TikTok might be designed to block all social media entities under control of hostile state actors, not just zeroing in on TikTok on its own. Among the disclosures the committee would demand from public companies are material ties to the Communist Party, profit derived from China, and the company's ability to withstand sudden loss of market access there. And the committee said the measures would both de-risk the U.S. economy from China, but also turbocharge domestic activity. I emailed a spokesman for the Chinese embassy today. He said the report, quote, runs counter to the principles of market economy and fair competition and will undermine the economic, uh, international, and trading order. Brian, back over to you. Oh, Eamon Javers. Uh, Eamon, thank you very much. All right, in the meantime, staying on the topic of China, a scary new report from the Washington Post highlighting how China's military is likely behind a number of hackers who've gained computer access to the systems of about two dozen key American infrastructure facilities around the nation. Some of the apparently hacked sites include a water utility in Hawaii, a port on the West Coast, and an oil and gas pipeline. The report notes the hackers also tried to gain access to the Texas power grid. Now, thankfully, none of the hacks caused any disruptions, but the very act is raising an alarm that China could use hackers to bring down key services in America, from power plants to pipelines to maybe the safety of your water. Joining us now is former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krebs. Chris, uh, welcome back. Uh, am I overstating this? I mean, when I read the story, it seemed pretty scary. Brian, you're not alone. Uh, as I talk to national security officials, they're extremely concerned about the access that Chinese cyber actors were able to get, and not just in strategic targets, but more broadly in seemingly random or ad hoc infrastructures across the country. And they've come to the simple conclusion that this is not just about disruption and destruction for military purposes, but for also just broader societal panic and chaos in the event of an escalation of hostilities. Yeah, when I when I and I spoke with somebody, Chris, a while back at a security forum and they basically said, well, you know, you know, China could probably shut off your GPS in two seconds as they take out this, this and this. They kind of walk through it. I don't want to say it because I don't want to give anybody any ideas, but it, it was really an eye opener for me. Uh, would it be that easy to take control of things like an electrical grid or a water supply? I'm not quite sure they have the access or the capabilities just yet to get into the operational technology, the things that actually move and click and whir and drive our hard infrastructures, but they certainly have the capabilities to get into the information technology side, the business process side, the corporate networks, and they can create enough havoc there by just resetting servers or shutting down key services that would be able to disrupt the delivery of a, a service or product to, to the endpoint. And yeah. When you think about Colonial Pipeline from 2021, 
that was not an operational technology attack. That was on the business side. It was an accounting or billing feature that shut down that, that led to the suspension of mm. uh, the movement of, of refined product. Yeah, I mean, the most important oil and gas pipeline in the United States was shut down by hackers purportedly to be from Russia. Terrifying. Do you think that to flip it, do you think we have the same capabilities with their systems? I mean, maybe there's kind of a little mutually assured uh, computer disruption. Well, we, we certainly have a very capable offensive security team or offensive cyber team at, at Cybercom and elsewhere. But I think we also look a little bit differently at, uh, at what's in scope and what's, what's appropriate. Uh, we adhere to a set of norms where you don't go after civilian critical infrastructure. So we, we may not play the, uh, the same game they do, but we certainly have among the best capabilities out there. Chris Krebs, really important story. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right, coming up, Netflix, like you've never seen it before. Their top shows and movies revealed for the first time ever, and there are some surprises. Plus, Last Calls, Power City Indexes, our exclusive rankings on the top cities for the stock market. We're going to unveil the top three just for you coming up. All right, let's get down to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories and headlines that you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, big news out of South America. Argentina is devaluing its currency, the Argentine peso, by more than half, 50%. In addition, the country is set to cut energy subsidies, suspend public works, and slash the size of the federal government. It is all part of the new president's shock treatment to fix Argentina's worst economic crisis in decades, Its economy minister says the measures would likely be painful in the short term, but are needed to cut the federal deficit to bring down out-of-control inflation. Next up, some bad news for Elon Musk. His platform X reportedly on track to bring in roughly $2.5 billion in ad sales for the year, but that is a big drop-off from prior years. X executives were originally targeted $3 billion in ad and subscription revenue for the year, but will fall short of that number as well. Some major companies, as you know, have paused, suspended, or canceled ads on X in recent week amid concern over hate speech and controversial comments, of course, from Musk himself. And finally, a longtime Biden donor is throwing his support behind the president's long-shot primary rival. Crypto heavyweight Michael Novogratz says he is fundraising for Dean Phillips, the Democratic rep from Minnesota who we just recently interviewed here on Last Call. Novogratz tells CNBC that Biden and Trump are, quote, too old and we need fresh people. And according to an invitation reviewed by CNBC, Novogratz will co-host a campaign fundraiser for Phillips this weekend in New York City. Phillips, of course, has basically been blocked on ballots in some states like Florida, which is not letting the primary process go forward. All right. Netflix finally pulling back the curtain on how much people watch its movies and its shows. They unveiled mid-year viewership data for nearly all their titles. It is the first time Netflix has ever done that. So we want to know, like, which ones made the top five? At number five was Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story viewed more than 500 million hours in the first half of the year. Number four, season one of Wednesday, it's Tim Burton's series about the Addams Family. Number three was season one of The Glory, the South Korean series viewed more than 622 million hours. Number two was season two of Ginny and Georgia, the family drama delivering its biggest audience if you consider all seasons of the show. But the most watched Netflix title in the first half of the year, season one 
of the night agent. It's a political thriller generating more than 812 million hours of viewing. For more on Netflix viewership data, let's bring in CNBC.com media reporter Alex Sherman. Alex, a lot of surprising stuff in here. What surprised you the most? Maybe the thing that surprised me the most, Brian, was that this list was released at all. Uh, this kind of came out of the blue. In fact, I was just talking to a source maybe 30 minutes ago, uh, and this person is connected to the Hollywood community very closely. And he said actually some creators were upset that Netflix didn't give creators warning that this was coming. They found out like late last night. Um, Netflix has really, over the years, gotten a reputation for kind of doing the exact opposite being very untransparent with its data. Uh, Certainly that has changed in more recent years, and co-CEO Ted Sarandos addressed it today in a conference call with the media, where he said, look, Netflix is just in a different place now as a company. We didn't want to give away any trade secrets as we grew this thing. Uh, and, And we had all these legacy media companies hovering around us. Everyone was trying to get into streaming. Now, in some ways, it's kind of a show that they've won the streaming wars, right? They're willing to do this. They're willing to say, Here's kind of everything we have. Take a look at it. Yeah. And we're no longer threatened by the idea that these other companies can steal our trade secrets and take away our business. I feel like there's a few re- Nothing is going to be done by accident. And I feel like there's a couple of reasons they would might they might want to do this. And, and let me know what your thoughts are. Number one is, to your point, they can show with these big hours, like we're the leader, with how many hours people are streaming. And thus, you could show it to advertisers as well because they do have an ad tier platform. And I think also you could flip it, right? And you could show people shows that are not being watched. And then you can go to them and say, we demand a discount on, you know, on licensing or however they do it back to the studio because nobody is watching your terrible program. Yeah. So I agree with both of those. Um, Netflix launched its ad tier about last year or so. Definitely it's now more relevant who's watching what for advertisers. So there's no question that's one reason they would do it now where they haven't done it in years past. We are just through both the actors and the writers' strike. The idea of more transparency connected to the pay of both writers and actors was a big issue there. So again, perhaps not that surprising that Netflix is now unveiling a little bit more data just to placate those two sectors coming out of that strike. To your point, to some degree, the pay actually may turn in Netflix's favor. If they say, hey, look, you wanted it, well, here it is. No one's watching your show, and that's why we're not paying you as much as maybe you'd like to get paid. Another possible reason is Netflix may actually be feeling just general outside pressure, whether that's from the government or from agencies or from the guild, just to be a little bit more transparent around everything. Yeah. Netflix is now the dominant player in the world of streaming. and When you're the dominant player, you're going to start to feel more pressure that you didn't feel as an upstart about transparency. When you hold data so close to the vest, we've seen this before with other tech companies drawing the ire of government pressure. So to some degree, Netflix at least gets out ahead of that a little bit by saying, "Okay, you know what? Take a look. We have 18,000 shows and movies for you. See where you're ranked. Well, might have been doing something right because we just showed in our snazzy new graphic. The stock is up like 47 percent this year. Alex Sherman, I'll let you get back to Bridgerton. Thank you. Yeah, or some of these other titles that honestly I've never even heard of. I, I have a lot of catching up. Ginny and Georgia, no clue. No, no clue. All right, coming up, Iranian-backed militants striking an oil tanker in the Middle East. So why are oil prices falling today? Helena Croft is here. Plus, 
Our exclusive Power City Indexes, the top hometown stock performances in America, will rank the top three areas for the stock market this year. Did your city or area make the list? Welcome back. Down to even more exclusive content right here on CNBC and Last Call and something you're only going to see on this show. It's called our Power City Index. What we did is we made 37 different stock indexes comprised of the best 10 to 12 stocks in each city and metro area around America. These are not tradable indexes yet, but just our special way to have some fun seeing which cities and areas have the hottest stock markets every year. We've been doing this going all the way back to 2013. So while this is new to Last Call, it's really my 10th year doing this, and usually one city crushes everybody, like Houston did with oil and gas last year, but not this year. In fact, this year we got something a little bit cool happening as we round out the year. That is a super close race between two neighboring areas. Silicon Valley, which is its own index in our system, is up a stunning 59% this year, while neighboring San Francisco is a very close second, up 56 11 of Silicon Valley's 12 stocks in our index are higher this year. Only PayPal, by the way, is down. The index is led by NVIDIA's 226% jump, along with 177% moves in Meta and 112% surge in AMD. San Francisco, they've got Uber's 153% pop and DoorDash's 107% doubling to thank for for their return. In fact, if it wasn't for First Republic Bank imploding and the stock effectively going to zero, San Francisco would have been well ahead of Silicon Valley. Obviously, First Republic is going to be replaced in our index next year, but kind of amazing. And if you're counting at home, Seattle coming in third right now with a nice 42% average gain for those 12 stocks this year. So could be kind of a wild shootout between two close cousins in California as to see who wins. Our best area for the stock market in America We'll tell you as we get closer to the end of the year. Right now, as Jim Morrison said, the West, it is the best. All right, in the meantime, something pretty amazing is happening in energy right now. Oil prices continue to drop. Today, oil closed around 68 a barrel, which means it is on closing in on being down by half from its peak last year after Putin invaded Ukraine. And the drop coming even as OPEC and its allies try to take millions of barrels per day off the market more disturbing news out of the Middle East today is Iranian-backed fighters in Yemen hit a Norwegian tanker with a missile. Thankfully, the French Navy was able to prevent the Norwegian ship from being hijacked or worse. So why is oil down even as the world heats up and OPEC is massively cutting production? It's a good question. Let's bring in RBC Capital Markets head of global commodity strategy, Halima Croft, live in our nation's capital, also a CNBC contributor, don't you? I think that's a very good question. We get a missile attack on a neutral tanker in the what? The Red Sea and oil falls. I mean, Brian, this is a market that basically believes there's no political risk to oil stemming from this two month war in the Middle East. The market participants are very focused on the oversupply situation, the growth of non OPEC production, in the U.S., Guyana, Canada, Brazil. New concerns about higher for longer with rates and concern that the OPEC union is not going to be able to deliver on all the cuts promised. So political risk, 
not really a factor in the market, but we remain really concerned about this escalating situation in the Red Sea. The Houthis have vowed to attack any tanker headed to Israel, any Israeli tanker. The U.S. military is deeply concerned about that unfolding situation. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing. It's, and there's somebody out there, big players, I don't know if it's a gigantic hedge fund, a nation, whatever it may be, that clearly wants the price of oil lower. No, I mean, Brian, this is a situation, again, where you, know, you have OPEC coming out and essentially saying, we're going to do you know, additional cuts. The Saudis are rolling over the unilateral. The Russians are. You had a number of other countries come out. And the market is basically saying, we are, don't believe that we're going to see the full extent of those OPEC cuts. And again, totally discounting the story of the Middle East, singularly focused on the supply situation from non-OPEC. And again, concerns about demand and a higher for longer situation with rates. So geopolitical risk for now, not a factor. Yeah, and I would imagine that, you know, OPEC and its allies, which, by the way, now include the aforementioned Brazil. I mean, Brazil, which is becoming an oil powerhouse, is joining the OPEC plus coalition as of January 1st. That has to move the needle a little bit, I think. Brian, the issue on Brazil is fascinating because Brazil is going to be a significant source of new production in the coming years. And so if Brazil was going to submit to collective market management, that would be very constructive for oil. But the challenge is, is that Brazilian officials have been a little bit up in the air about what this actually means. Some have said Brazil is going to be an observer, so potentially not going along with any production cuts. So it's sort of a we don't know what's really going to happen with the Brazil story. So, again, I think that's why there's some skepticism about the Brazil announcement. People are really waiting to see whether these OPEC countries beyond Saudi Arabia deliver on these pledged cuts. OK, yeah. And that's it. And uh Oil, 68. It was 123 when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. It's been not a steady decline. Of course, it popped in the fall. Is it possible to make the case, even with what's going on with OPEC, for $50 oil, assuming countries kind of start to, you know, pull a Fleetwood Mac and go their own way? I mean, again, I think people are going to be really watching. I mean, the, the bare case for oil would be any indications that we basically have countries throwing in the towel, that you get a return to a situation where OPEC says we're going to stop giving room for non-OPEC to grow. I don't see any indications at the moment that Saudi Arabia or OPEC's willing to throw in the towel. But again, that would be the sort of really bare case for oil, that essentially they say we're bringing the oil back and we're going to bring a game on again with these non-OPEC producers. Again, we don't see any indications of that, but that would be your scenario for 50 and below. Pretty amazing. Halima Croft, NDC. Halima, always appreciate it. Amazing time. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. All right, always welcome. Coming up, a big security move by Apple that any of you that own an iPhone are going to want to hear. That is next. All right, welcome back. If you have an iPhone, I mean, who doesn't? You may want to listen to this because Apple is rolling out a big new security setting for its phones that will hopefully help to protect user information and data if their password is stolen. Joining us now is Wall Street Journal tech columnist and CNBC contributor Joanna Stern, who broke the story. Joanna, welcome. Great scoop. What are they doing? Well, there's been a trick, really, that 
thieves have been doing across the country, which is that they are stealing iPhones and they are stealing people's passcodes. They are watching people put in their passcodes. And when these thieves can get both a stolen iPhone or any iPhone and a passcode, they can really unlock your entire digital and financial life. They can get into your passwords. They can change the password to your Apple account, locking you out of your Apple account. And so these changes that come from Apple today, that's rolling out first in beta and more widely in a few months, they say, is to address that issue. And it is called, uh, well, they've called it stolen device protection. And what that means is, is when you leave your house, you can turn on this feature. You want to, it can turn on automatically when you leave your house and it will turn on some ad- added layers of security to your settings menu and prevent thieves from doing all of these things with a passcode. Yeah, it's pretty crazy because they, they rolled out and I tweeted only half jokingly or x whatever that iOS 17, the new operating system makes my phone sad because it has this new weird feature that like you get near somebody else's phone and it tries to like mate with the other phone. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like a cicada. It's like a cicada just flies in and then all of a sudden tries to share the in- information and it feels kind of sluggish and slow. Is this a fix to the rollout? What, what, where is this in that system? So what you're describing, I, I believe, is the name drop feature. So if we bring our phones close together in iOS 17, we can trade our contact information. Yes, even if you don't want to. Like back in the day, I used the word name drop for a whole different reason. I was hanging out with Eminem <laughs> last night. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I would like to name drop your name. It's, it's a good, you're, you're, you're popular in certain circles. 17th but most in- trusted news anchor, apparently, in, in the West Coast or so. I don't know. Anyway, Joanna, kidding. Go ahead. In Hawaii, I think it's it's also even it's even narrower than that. Um, so so when when you with, with name drop, this is separate from that. With name drop, that's a feature they have made so it's easier for people to swap information. In fact, it makes it so you don't have to hand someone else your phone, right? If say, hey, oh yeah, let me get your number, I'll call you or text you, whatever they do these days, right? That, that that's what name drop is about, and this this change doesn't have anything to do with that. This has to do with what criminals have been doing across the country, which is actually going after people at bars at public locations, trying to get their phones out of their hands, see them take that passcode into their phone, and then using that passcode really to drain bank accounts and lock them out of their Apple accounts. And this is Apple responding to that and saying, here's a feature you can turn on when Mm. the feature's out that can help protect your information. Well, this, this, this seems like a positive then. It's a positive, uh, especially for what I've talked to many victims who have been uh, who have had this happen to them. Lost money, lost access to their yeah. photos forever. But that name drop thing, man, I, it's like I don't like it. The Palm Pilot tried it 25 years ago. No, thanks. Joanna, thank you very much. Appreciate it, folks, everybody. Thank you for watching Last Call. We'll see you tomorrow night. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.